Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This podcast contains explicit language. So that happened. This week, Republican presidential nominee Donald Trump opted to shake up his campaign for what seems like the 23rd time. Paul Manafort, who was the campaign's manager and who was thought to be a force toward professionalizing Trump's wayward effort, is out. His replacement, Steve Bannon of Breitbart News, heralds a new shift toward allowing Trump to fully fly his freak flag. Hopefully this is amusing to some of the aliens who watch over us. Meanwhile, in an effort to contend more substantively with Trump, We're going to wade into what's turning out to be a hot media debate. Are his followers fueled by racial animus or by economic anxiety? Also, we have a rather interesting interview for you with a Republican lobbyist who thinks that a Clinton presidency would be much better for the Republican Party than a Trump presidency. This lobbyist wishes to remain anonymous for obvious reasons, so you're going to get to enjoy our first foray into digital voice alteration. Finally, we turn to Obamacare, which faced some bad news this week after Aetna, a major player in the insurance market, announced that they would be pulling back from participating in the Affordable Care Act's exchanges. According to Aetna, the sticking point is lost profits. But we found out something interesting, namely that Aetna threatened to pull out of Obamacare if the Department of Justice impeded their planned merger with Humana. Funny how creating a market-based solution to healthcare provision created the means by which corporations could use leverage to procure other favors, isn't it? I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Christina Wilkie, and Jeff Young. And here's what happened first. Hello and good day to everyone out there in podcast land. Welcome once again to another exciting edition of So That Happened, your weekly digest of stuff that's going on in politics and the inevitable ruination of all things you know and love. My name is Jason Lincolns. I am the editor of Eat the Press at the Huffington Post. And joining me right off the top, we are very happy to have with us Arthur Delaney, who's often here right at the top things. And as a special uh, off the top person, we have Christina Wilkie. Hey. It's so nice to see you guys, um, and uh, it's it's inevitable what we're going to be talking about to begin with. Trump. Yeah. Yes. Thank, yeah. Thanks. Thanks for filling us in on that. So um, uh, this week, exciting developments. This in morning. The, the Trump. No, world. no, no. There's no. There's no today here. <laughs> Yeah, it's we, just listener. It's whenever you we, are. We live in a liminal space between time uh, and and place. Don't we are, feel bad. Nobody. It's Friday, everyone. It's Friday. No, we're, it's no, it's whatever day it is. Okay. It's whenever you are. That's we have to when start it over is. Now? No, no, we're not. No. We're not going to start over. Everyone who listens to us is used to Arthur objecting to any attempt to properly position us in the time space continuum. But okay, so this week, Christina, this week. Uh, we had big developments in the Trump campaign. I'm sure you'd love to tell us about them. It's funny you should call them developments. They're more like devolutions. Okay, yeah, well, it's a kind of development. Um, So for the second time in two months, Donald Trump uh, assigned a new person to take over his campaign. And if you guys recall, two months ago, um, Corey Lewandowski was fired. And and notorious dictator shilling lobbyist Paul Manafort um, took some time off from setting up coups to to take over the campaign. Vladislav Surkov's man in Ukraine. Yes, of course. Um, So our man in (laughs) Kiev came home and uh, with his like bundles of cash, which we also learned about this week. But he ran the campaign from from a sort of a like a. Establishment Republican reigning in Trump, trying to get him to say less things that cause violence and he, more things that are true. He counseled him against the Taco Bowl tweet. 
Right, we which was very from, racist. So who's, but, the, who's the but, new guy? Yeah, Man- Manafort was supposed to be the professionalizer. Right. So he obviously hasn't been doing the trick. So I imagine Trump that Trump hated went out and, being professionalized. Oh, okay. Yes. So I imagine that it's actually steered in the other direction. He, so he Trump, as of three o'clock in the morning on an unspecified morning, uh, <laughs> he announced that he had hired the executive editor of Breitbart News, which is a I mean, it's like a a car wreck of a conservative, um, like libertarian, angry, populist, um, not so facty uh, <laughs> place on the internet. Right. Like people love it, they hate it. Um, the but fashionable it, term now is alt right. Yes, you're a source for all trite news and yes. American decline. Uh, and so the guy is Steve. So the guy Bannon. Steve Bannon. Yes. Um, Tell me about who Steve Bannon is. Steve Bannon is the executive editor of Breitbart News. So, but, but the, Breitbart aggregates news with a very intense spin and conservative spin. And Breitbart has been the singular champion in media of Donald Trump from 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 long before he even announced. That, that he was thinking of running. So yeah. Breitbart has been Breitbart and Fox News have been goading Trump and pretending he's real. Yeah, you know, like, for years they've been they've been called like Trump's Pravda. And I'm I'm looking at something a Talking Points memo right now that I think is probably the ur example of Breitbart's Trump boosterism. It's an article uh, which which was headlined Trump's Jacksonville rally draws 15,000. As you can see there, there's like a picture. There's like a crowd of people. It looks like a lot of people. Yeah. It turns out that the picture they used on the story to indicate the large Trump rally in Jacksonville was actually the Cleveland Cavaliers NBA championship celebration. It happened in Cleveland. Yeah, I mean, I'm uh, sure they were just looking through their available AP photos and like that's a big crowd. We'll just use that one. And well. And, and sure, add, it wasn't an attempt to be completely dishonest. Well, but add to this the fact that Steve Bannon, who's now going to run the Trump campaign, is a guy who does not apologize, who do, who disdains corrections when his reporters make the worst mistake you could like make in your whole career. Someone is alive and you write they're dead or vice versa. Um, Steve Bannon says, fuck it, honey badger, don't give a fuck. Don't, you know, like, <laughs> you don't have to apologize to anyone. And that's human, literally their motto, by yes, the way. Yes, that is their motto. Yeah. So we know that, by the way, we know that honey badger line, uh, pr- because of Joshua Green's great, uh, profile of Bannon some years ago in yes. the Atlantic. And here's what's, here's what I found curious. I went back and reread Josh Green's profile today about Bannon and Bannon in, at that point in time anyway, had staked out this vision of what conservative journalism would be, which would be that Breitbart News wouldn't lead the pack out the door at any story. They would actually go and uncover facts that nobody knew and allow investigative journalists of any bent, liberal, conservative, whatever, just the best investigative journalists around, present those present the facts of a case and then follow on and aggregate and make money off of it, which was fine, fine. But the emphasis there was on we will do things that are factual. There was a concentration on facts, not crazy suppositions. So so where did that vision of Breitbart News vanish? Where it went was to Tallahassee, Florida, where Bannon and um, and Steve, um, or the the a guy who recently wrote a book about Hillary Clinton's cash, yeah. Schweitzer. Schweitzer, thank yes. you. Um, the two of them founded a nonprofit um, in Tallahassee that called the Government Accountability Institute, and it is funded with million dollar checks from the Mercer family, and it pays Bannon, for instance, a uh, hundred thousand a year to do, I, I think, almost nothing, and. <laughs> And he and it's so they've taken this idea and in that wonderful way that conservative journalism often does, they have both sold it and monetized it. And um, Peter Peter Schweitzer's book wasn't a train wreck. I mean, it was it did, I think, lay out a pretty convincing case that the Clinton Foundation had been sort of really sketchy in the way they approached uh, people who people. I've always seen the the Clinton Foundation as sort of like a massive brand washing scheme where Hmm. people give money to good causes and they forgive their sins kind of kind of situation. And it enriches the Clintons on, on top of everything else. I mean, it is a massive clearinghouse of corporate international power when you really right. think about it. But it does help little kids see, whereas Donald Trump steals money from the elderly. So, so uh, just saying. We'll, we'll go with, yeah. Breitbart had true. potentially been on Trump's payroll for many months before this week's news. Yeah, this... McKay Coppins reported in his book, a BuzzFeed reporter, 
that uh, you know, he's got four sources saying the tr- that Trump been paying Breitbart. So now it's it's if that's true, they're basically making this a formal arrangement. I was thinking this today that perhaps in some dark corner of the internet, this is actually more transparency as opposed to you know people are, are pulling their hair out, and you know but. If he was working for him before, now he's just on the books. All right. Well, uh, let me let me just back up to one last thing about this that's 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 interesting to me, and that is, um, since the period of time where Donald Trump became the presumptive nominee, uh, all us graybeards in Washington D.C. have have speculated that a pivot of some kind was coming. And normally, we talk about a pivot, a presidential pivot. We are acknowledging the fact that. In a primary, a candidate has to sort of reach their base. They're often a little bit far left, a little bit far right of where the center is. And the pivot takes you back to safe, establishment, centrist territory. And I don't think anyone ever really thought Donald Trump was going to stake out some kind of centrist position. But there was this sense that some kind of marriage had to happen between the Trump campaign and what we will gen- generically refer to as establishment Republicans. Your Paul Ryan. You could or call Mitch them truth if you wanted. Yeah, yeah. Um, doesn't this new arrangement with Bannon put paid to the notion that this campaign is going to be at all even making an attempt to embrace some kind of polite conservative or polite GOP ethos? Yes, in every way. So Bannon is a guy like Trump. He's a he's a showman. He's brash. He's been talking to Trump for months, and he's been one of these little voices in Trump's ear. They've been having all these phone conversations, and Bannon's been encouraging Trump to to just do what he wants and say what he feels and be a real outsider, which Trump interprets as as crazy as he wants. So meanwhile, Paul Manafort, who is, was dumped recently, um, was asking Trump to tone it down, to work off a teleprompter, to to actually actually have policies, not simply. I mean, to attempt to reach out to a wider base or a wider wider group of voters and simply people who are coming to his rallies, who he's already won their votes. So. In a way, any more time you spend with them is a waste. So isn't the timing of this interesting? The night the uh, the, the Bannon story broke, prior to that, Trump had been at a rally yes. in Wisconsin. A, probably a hopeless state for him to win. Deeply bizarre rally. But he made, I guess, what he would probably think in his mind was a, a furtive attempt to try to reach the African-American vote. Yes. And it... And, all reviews of that speech were that it was another anesthetized performance, another completely uh, nonsensical ramblings from him. Word salad. I listened to it. And do you think that maybe what happened here was Trump went out, gave that speech and was like, ah, oh, this is not who I am. Fuck you. Burn it all down. Bring in these freak jobs. I'll actually tell you what happened. Be what it, I want. Um, so this all went down um, a couple days ago over the weekend. Trump oh. was at. Okay. Oh. Trump was at a fundraiser um, for himself, and he ran into a woman named Rebecca Mercer, who's the daughter of Robert Mercer, who's a huge GOP money man. Rebecca Mercer's on the board of the Heritage Foundation. She's on the board of Bannon's nonprofits, his nonprofits. And, uh, she just scare-quoted nonprofits for the record. Thank you. Um, and Rebecca um, Mercer and Trump began talking about how Trump was being watered down and how that was unjust and how his Trumpness was being diluted. And she basically convinced him, I, I understand, over the course of a couple of hours to dump his current campaign and um, and hire Bannon, who she's had a long-running business and, and a sort of ideological relationship with. And in a way, it just underscores the fact that you could go to a party. And Trump doesn't drink, so he wasn't drunk. You could go to a party <laughs> and have problem. like a two-hour conversation with someone you basically didn't know, had never met, and come away and completely dis- like disintegrate your actual presidential campaign for the presidency of the United States and send it in another direction because someone put a bug in your ear. Yeah, he, he definitely favors whatever he heard most recently. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just um, like – and this is a woman who's been around, but she's hardly an expert. Um and he just it also reminds you of how quickly Trump throws people away. So he he threw he, Well Manafort he, is still on the campaign. Only but, technically. But, he's out to pasture. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, I think that the polite way of calling this is mercurial. Yes, and, the right. other the other word is Alice's no. tea party on acid. 
<laughs> basically. Christina, thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. Arthur, thanks for being here. We have a great show. Please stick around. We'll be right back to talk about things that maybe aren't about Donald Trump, but probably really are. <laughs> hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So... Obamacare is a law you probably have heard about. It is a controversial law. Widely been credited, though, for reducing the uninsured rate and for bending the health care cost curve down. But with a lot of laws that are passed, you've come to find out eventually that they're subject to something called the law of unintended consequences. And this week, the law of unintended consequences probably has reared its head in a significant way. Uh, Joining us to talk about this weird nexus between corporate power and your politics. We have Arthur Delaney Hi. and Jeff Young, who reported this story we're going to talk about today. Yep. So take me through this, Jeff. This we, At the beginning of the week, we learned that Aetna, a major health insurer, probably uh, insurer most people have heard of, some of our listeners maybe even use, was going to be pulling out, not entirely, but restricting their involvement with the Obamacare exchanges, citing the fact that they had lost a lot of money in the exchange, they weren't able to get uh, anything but very sick people on their rolls, and they wanted to just sort of pull back from the marketplace a little bit. Uh, And it was generally characterized as bad news for Obamacare, but we've come to find out that there was perhaps uh, in the background some ulterior motives on Aetna's part. Yes, there were other factors. Uh, and uh, before I go to those really quick, uh, Aetna's story about losing money in these exchanges is not exclusive to Aetna. Uh, the majority of the companies that have been selling these products so far over the last, uh, I guess we're in three years of people actually mm-hmm. buying coverage this way, um, are not making a profit. Uh, some of them are, are suffering pretty big losses, and Aetna's not the first big company to pull out. What makes this situation different uh, compared to all of the other ones, is that Aetna was trying to get the Justice Department to give their okay to a merger with Humana, another health insurance company. It's one of two big mergers that was on the block. The other one is Anthem and Cigna. Last month, the Justice Department said, no, we're going to fight you on this. We think it's anti-competitive. There's a fair amount of evidence to support that because virtually every time there's been a health insurance merger in the past, it resulted in higher prices. Um, what we learned yesterday is that Back in July, about two weeks or so before DOJ announced, no, we're not going to go along with your merger plan, the CEO of Aetna sent them a letter and said, if you don't okay our merger, we're going to have to pull out of this Obamacare. Mm. And Mm. it's not just that that's what they told DOJ in this letter that they obviously didn't want people to see. It's that leading up to um, their announcement on Monday that they were going to pull out, the CEO of Aetna had always said, not uniformly positive things about Obamacare, but what he'd said was, hey, we're losing money right now, but we think this is the future and we're going to stick with it. And by the way, Aetna makes huge profit margins on all of their other lines of business. So in theory, if they wanted to, they could afford to absorb some losses for a few years if they thought that over time this could be a winner. Um, What was contained in that letter directly contrasted their public statements on this leading Mm. up to their decision and after it, which is that well, look, we just can't afford to lose this money anymore. 
These things can both be true. It can both be true that they were trying to pressure the Obama administration through the DOJ up to the White House and then back down to Health and Human Services to give them what they wanted on this merger. Um, but at the same time, there is an element of, to use two cliches that have been bouncing around in my head uh, uh, for the last day or so, of I'm going to take my ball and go home, or nice Obamacare exchange you got there, be ashamed if something happened to it. So now that the cat's out of the bag, what does Aetna say for itself? Well, when we contacted them last night for the story, all they really did was restate some blend of what they told everybody beforehand, which is, hey, we're losing a lot of money, and what was in the letter, which is basically, well, uh, we thought maybe we'd be more willing to lose money for a few more years because we think that this merger is going to be a big boon to our business. So that'll help us balance out the costs on the one side. Um, But as somebody uh, said on Twitter today, you know, I mean, it's more complicated than this, but if you can't make money as Aetna, and that's a problem, why would you be able to, in that line of business, why would you be able to make money as Aetna Humana in the same market? Because Aetna's so big to begin with. Yeah, uh, yes, although the, the exchanges are a little bit weird, and I think this is sort of a popular misconception because uh, most people don't use them. Is maybe maybe 10% of the country buys insurance themselves as opposed to getting it from their job or you know they're on Medicare or Medicaid or something like that. So people hear of companies like Aetna or United Healthcare, which also a few months back pulled out of the of most of the exchanges, and and they think like, well, if these big companies aren't doing well there, that must mean that these exchanges are a disaster. The truth is that from, from it varies from state to state, but in most places, it's like the local Blue Cross plan is the big deal in that state. Right. Aetna, United Healthcare, Humana, these companies have always done most, or in some cases, nearly all of their business with big companies providing insurance to their employees, which is a very different kind of market from this one. So a factor, and it's not the main one, but a factor in why they're struggling is that they're just not used to dealing directly with consumers. You know, and if you're if you're covering a big company with a thousand employees, the company basically just covers the medical costs and usually just pays you a fee for managing it for you. Right. So if there's a big loss one year, you know, Globochem eats that money, not Aetna. It's different in the exchange. And Blue Cross Blue Shield, they're more they're they're more used to just working directly with consumers on these kind of products. Yeah, and it's not that, you know, I mean, a lot of people have Blue Cross plans from their jobs, too. It's not that they only do the, like, individual family or small business plans, but they do a lot more of it than Aetna United ever did. Although, full disclosure, I once had an Aetna individual plan here in the District of Columbia. It was reasonably priced. (laughs) Sure. So, well, what's going to happen to Obamacare? Could Obamacare, like, go belly up and completely fail? Yeah, well, I I mean, yeah, it could. Uh, I think that, I mean, maybe I'm just a little callous to it because every single time something comes out that says anything other than Obamacare is the greatest thing that ever happened to humanity, there's a lot of people who go like, oh my God, it's going to die tomorrow. <laughs> every single time. So like there's a little bit of a chicken little thing here. But that's not to say that this is not uh, an indication of some problems and the problems might and this will terrify anybody who cares about this, might require congressional intervention. Oh, yeah. man, yeah. Because the, the sort of this, the simplest way of putting the underlying issues is that they set up this market for everybody, and if you make up to a certain amount of money, you can get some pretty heavy subsidies, which means that if your prices go up from year to year, you're not really paying that. The t- government just picks up the rest of the tab. Right. But if you're not getting any subsidy or you're getting a really small one and the premium goes up 10 15 20%, um, you have to pay that or decide that it's not worth the money anymore. And what the indications are so far is that too many of the people who have signed up, and there's something, there was something like 13 million people who bought their insurance through the exchanges at, for this year. It's fewer who still have it, but that's, that's roughly the number. Um, more of them are the ones who really need it the most, which, by the way, is also a sign that, like, they needed this. Sick people. Right. Right. It, it, I get a little bit turned off when people veer from going, gee, I'm not sure if this program works, to saying, people are going to the doctor. How do we solve this problem? Oh, right. <laughs> well, okay. That's what it's for. At the risk of turning you off, uh, of speaking only for myself in this, let's say, as an aspiring Canadian <laughs> and a fan of single-payer health care, um, I have to think that like, when I see this kind of thing happening, when I see... Aetna flexing their corporate muscles and their lobbying muscles to try to work a favorable deal from the Justice Department on a merger, and they're using their involvement in 
what could nominally be called a public health care tool as leverage, it makes me think that perhaps the whole notion of insurance as a public good and corporations profiting from insuring people are two things that don't ever are never going to mix. Folks, I think uh, we forgot to tell you that Bernie Sanders was here today. Hey, I've been... Welcome, Senator. <laughs> Thank you for being here. Yeah, sorry about that. See? <laughs> See? See what I did there? Well, well no, I mean... People are... We've been hearing more about the public option yeah. in the past like few weeks than we've heard since 2009. Right. The Clinton campaign, mostly because, you know, they were trying to win Sanders people over a little bit by saying, well, we won't give you a single payer, but let's talk about the public option. And then the president also came out for it. Uh, right after Clinton did. This would be actual government health insurance. Yeah, so it, w- it would sit alongside the in- private insurance companies on the exchanges. The obvious idea being that the government does, doesn't have a profit motive and therefore could charge lower prices, which would put price pressure on the other companies. It also would mean that you wouldn't see a situation like right now, and I, I have a hunch this will get resolved at some point, but there's one county in Arizona that with Aetna's pullout literally has no health insurance companies for the exchange there. No. So that's a problem. Right. That's a that's a definite problem. And there are a lot of other places, and it usually is on a county-by-county county basis where, you know, between Aetna and United and Humana uh, scaling back in the exchanges and then the co-op plans uh, that the ACA created, and I won't even get into that story, most of them are dead. Um, there are fewer – there are a lot of places now where there's like maybe one health insurance company you can buy from. But to get to your main point, I mean, yeah, uh, when you set up a system that runs public money – through private entities, and those private entities still need to make a profit, not only to stay alive, but because in Aetna's case, for example, they almost surely were getting pressure from their shareholders. Why are you losing money on any line of business? Right. You know, are, you know, my return this quarter was lower than it could have been because your Obamacare losses cost me a half a cent per share. So you got to get out of this. Um, I will say, though, that like, you know, I a lot of people on Twitter today coming at me like, well, doesn't this mean that we need single payer? It doesn't mean we need it any more than we might have needed it yesterday. True. Right? The argument in favor of it is always the same. <laughs> yes. Um, and, you know, and and also, I mean, even, even if you thought that um, this sort of exchange set up, you know, where the companies have to cover everybody who comes, but we'll give you some money to help you pay for it. And there's some new rules. They got to actually cover your prescriptions and stuff like that better than they used to. Um, even if you thought that was a reasonable compromise between sort of, you know, federal intervention on the problem of healthcare costs and the uninsured um, without replacing everything with a single payer plan, um, even if you thought that, it's not because you didn't recognize that, well, if everybody were just in the same thing, it would be more efficient and a hell of a lot simpler. You know, I think the problem is, and I don't want to sound like Hillary Clinton here exactly, but, you know, I mean, the calculation that the Obama administration made, which, by the way, was similar to what the Clinton administration did with their failed health plan, is people are going to people get all pissed off if you change anything. Right. And. You know, so you had like twenty percent or something like that of the twenty percent or something like that of the country that had no health insurance, but that means that eighty percent did. Yeah, and you're and changing mo- their market, and you're changing what they have. Even if you could make the case that the Sanders campaign did that, well, it'll be better than what they have. Even if that were true, which would be impossible for everybody, because some people have some pretty sweet ass health insurance, right? Because they can afford it. Um, it's still change, right? And change makes people very angry. And if you're and if you're making public policy part of your you know, part of what you're trying to do is piss off the smallest number of people you can piss off in order to get the outcome you're trying to get. You know, having said all of that, if this market continues to not work and if it can't be righted either in a sort of natural, organic way in the marketplace or through tweaks at the administrative level or maybe even there's some fantasy future in the next couple of years where Congress goes back to making laws um, – uh, even if that happens, that still doesn't mean that five years down the line or 10 years down the line, people might just not go, you know what? All of this is too much of a pain in the ass. I'm tired of switching plans every year. My deductible is different every year. I don't even know what drugs are covered anymore. Whether you get your insurance from your job or someplace else and just go, maybe we should just all sign up for one big thing and be done with it. All right. Thank you, Jeff Young, for talking us through another thorny issue in our lives with our health insurance. And Arthur Delaney, thank you. Uh, We will be right back.
Hey, we're back. And um, you remember how I promised that maybe we wouldn't talk about Donald Trump anymore? Ha 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 I lied. Ha 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 ha. Very, very deceptive. Uh, but uh, we actually have a pretty great discussion to have about Donald Trump and really the source of his support and the way in which the media has kind of uh, construed the nature of Donald Trump's support and uh, where supporters are strictly coming from. Joining us to talk about this is Arthur Delaney. Hi. And the man who wrote the story about this, uh, Zach Carter. Guys have just woken me up from my daily sleeping time in the tent in the studio. Bring him back to tent. Where I live. Bring him back to tent. (laughs) Yeah, call back to our best ever joke. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. You live in a house. Yeah, this is uh, a co-op technically. This is real Arrested Development stuff. Um, um, So, so Zach, uh, I think that when people have considered the source of Donald Trump's support, um, probably the people who get sort of the top line uh, recognition for being fervent Donald Trump supporters are these kind of alt-right people, these kind of uh, people who view the world through uh, racial prisms mm-hmm. um, and who are sort of been empowered by Donald Trump and his calls for uh, an end to political correctness to let their freak flags fly. Uh, and so we have all kinds of like weird connections between but, racists and anti-Semites. But it depends but, on who you read, right? Of course it is. Of course it depends on who you read. But but I think that one of the things you get to rather expertly is that is that, first of all, that may only be a secondary factor for some of these voters and that mostly where people are coming to Trump's campaign, it's kind of like in a way... The same kind of reasons people flock to Bernie Sanders' campaign. If if Bernie Sanders was maybe a kinder, gentler version and stoked kinder, gentler passions, but there's still this sort of economic underpinnings to Trump's support. Yeah, I, I don't think you can divorce uh, either economic anxiety, that's the word we've uh, decided on as the sort of uh, media intelligentsia uh, to describe uh, Trump supporters. I don't think you can divorce economic anxiety from his support, and I also don't think you can, can divorce straight up um, racism. From, from his support. Um, I, I, I think the two sort of depend on each other in, uh, in, in a very important and meaningful way. Uh, and depending on who you read, um, there's, there's sort of a debate within Beltway circles about whether Trump's support is either exclusively due to economic issues or exclusively due to uh, race, racial anxiety, racism. Um, and I, I think that's just a bad frame. Uh, we have decades and decades of social science research, which suggests that in times of economic insecurity, um, people are more susceptible to demagogues who want to scapegoat minorities. Um, and so when you look at polling data for the things that Trump supporters care about, and they, they seem to care a lot about all of this racist stuff, um, that's that's if you use that to say, well, they only care about about race issues. Um, that's a very surface level um, kind of analysis that's missing, I think, a lot of what's going on and why why we have, you know, this type of demagoguery happening, you know, a few years after a financial crisis. Well, what's so challenging is that we've got the term economic anxiety in lieu of empirical economic problems for the most part, because the headline numbers that are easiest to understand portray an economy that's not doing that bad. 4.9% unemployment, consistent job growth, and even some wage gains in the last year. Some. Which are just very belatedly. It's 30 years late, right? So, So when people then try to drill down on what's bothering the Trump constituency, they don't find very compelling problems in a lot of cases. Like, it's not restricted to people without a college degree. It's not people who are poor. It's people who well, are... One of those is true, but the other's not. I mean, his 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 um, support is overwhelmingly concentrated among white people without a college degree, but his supporters are, as you say... They're as not say, exclusively. Not yeah. exclusively. And I don't think it's... I think it's wrong to say that he has monolithic support, right? People vote for different people for yeah. lots of different reasons. Uh, Benji Sarlin at, at uh, NBC News did a really excellent piece uh, sort of explaining Trump's support over time, and, and it changes over the course of the primary uh, who, who supports him and why. Uh, but... Um, but it is true that his supporters are generally above the median income. Um, and so there was a big study that just came out from Gallup where, where it was widely interpreted as debunking the idea that, be, that, that economic anxiety had any involvement with this. But what it also showed 
in addition to his supporters being you know higher than the median income, they do not generally have college degrees. They are white. Um, and they also come from communities that are economically distressed. They come from communities, counties, where white life expectancy is on the decline, where the unemployment rate is higher, uh, and where, when, where economic mobility, your ability to get out of uh, a low or middle class background, if you're born into it, uh, is is very difficult, um, and so it, it 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 is a complicated picture. But it seems to me perfectly consistent with the idea that people in these communities are experiencing economic anxiety, and that they are they can be uh, that that economic anxiety can be demagogued into uh, in, into a sort of um, discriminatory and, uh, and and racist political uh, worldview. Just to define a term really quickly, um, tell us tell us what it's like uh, when we when we talk about things like the median income and people being above the median income. Um, I feel like I feel like if we're uh, that w- these people are depicted, oh, they're above the median income, so they are de facto winners. But they're these aren't these aren't rich people. These aren't people who are who can be said to be like completely economically secure just because they're above the, and, median, the income. median income is fifty grand. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in the across the United States, and different studies look at this differently. Some say, well, the median income for this county or for this sure, you know sure. metropolitan statistical area or whatever. Um, uh, but when we, you know, when you're talking about somebody who works in construction and makes fifty-two thousand dollars a year, and saying, "Look at you, lucky ducky," you know, I, I kind of shrug my shoulders a little bit there and say, you know, are, are we really saying that this is this is somebody who's just living living high on the hog, a, a rich guy who loves Donald Trump? Like, I don't think that's an accurate right. characterization. There are rich people who love Donald Trump, and if you look at his economic policies, it's a lot of understandable them why would actually right, and and that this is one of the sort of counter arguments to this that it's really all about race. That if you look at his policies, uh, to the extent that he has policies, a lot of them are just pro-rich policies. The actual policies that are good for poor people are on the Democratic side, you know, preponderantly with um, with Bernie Sanders, but also to some extent with Hillary Clinton. Um, But I think I think it's kind of silly to assume that every single voter out there is spending all day becoming a policy wonk trained in professional economic analysis. Um, I, I just don't. Well, we know that's not how people behave. People of color have worse economic problems than white people, and they think Donald Trump sucks. So that's another reason for the disagreement over economic anxiety versus just these these people are racist. Right, but it's also the case that white life expectancy is declining right now and has been declining since the early '90s. So if you live just because and in the suicides aggregate, suicides within white impoverished economically distressed community have gone up. The, well, right. The, ma- the main driver of the, the decline in life expectancy is is addiction overdoses and suicide, um, which are pretty depressing um, reasons for the life expectancy to be going down. They suggest that these communities are th- – there are communities where white people are pretty miserable and things are bad. So just because in the aggregate people of color have it worse – than white people doesn't mean that within specific communities there are there are, you know large I mean a lot of, a lot of the Gallup poll showed that a lot of people who vote for Trump live in or support Trump live in these very isolated sort of white enclaves but that doesn't mean that those communities are prospering and that the people who live in them have have it great uh, and if you're watching you know your uncle or your brother die of a heroin overdose and you know your sister and your mom get laid off uh, and you're trading you know uh, sodas for food stamps in an underground economy, you know, this is a, this is not a great way to live. And, and so it's, it's, I think it's worth noting that, that these are, these are things that could be addressed. They won't address everything, but they're, well, the the broader problem problem is income inequality. And I wonder how, how do people experience that? Like, is it through mass media that you realize how much less you're getting than the really rich people who don't do anything like Kardashians and, and Paris Hilton is that part? Is it just like the culture portraying uh, uh, the excesses of rich people that makes it seem so much worse, or is it the life by itself? I think uh, it's part of it. But when, you know, when you know that everybody, that you don't have to be aware of the statistics showing that you know life expectancy in your community is declining to know that things suck in your community. Um, I, I think that's something that people sort of feel and experience every day, and it breeds resentment. They say, well, somebody's got to be responsible for this. This can't be my fault, um, and it's very difficult to blame things on abstract economic forces, so maybe it's the fault of immigrants. Maybe it's the fault of, of you know, the black people two counties over. They're, they're getting all this free stuff. Why am I not getting free stuff? Never mind that a lot of poor people – I mean, you've done articles on this, Arthur. You know, most people on food stamps are white. Um, yep. you know, it, it becomes very easy to scapegoat people. Uh, in, under these circumstances, that so, doesn't mean that racism is caused by economic 
sure, in, sure, uh, sure. insecurity in all cases, right? Yeah, no, of course. Uh, so one one last thing I want to get to. Um, when we talk about how there's a disagreement between uh, whether or not Trump supports are or Trump supporters are racially racist in their motivations or economically uh, anxious in their motivations, that's an argument that really is being had by the media. It's not it's not being had out there in the country by people who do or do not support Donald Trump. It's something that the media is talking about. <clears throat> to a certain extent, and I think you get this in your piece, um, and I want you to elaborate on this, it, it seems to me like when we talk about uh, Trump being mainly supported by racists, that feels like the media sort of like preparing themselves to walk away from all the stuff that just happened, uh, the, the Trump's rise, to to suggest that like, okay, because it does look right now, if trends hold, that he's going to have a historic hiding on election day. Mm-hmm. And, and and Hillary Clinton's going to win in, in something akin to a, a modern landslide. I'm not saying that's going to happen. I'm saying that's how trends look right now. And I, th- I feel like if that holds, the media is going to, who've never been really good on explaining it, the economy, they're far from leftist, on, on right. e- the economy, right. far from liberal on the economy in general. I feel like they're going to sort of like attribute Trump's rise to racism and then walk away clean from what's really been going on in the country. Yeah, yeah there, I think there, there are sort of two problems with the it's only racism argument, both of which excuse um, in particular Democratic policymakers. Because, um, look, if if it's only racism and economic factors can have no way of influencing people's views about about racial attitudes, then your understanding of racism is just like a whole bunch of hearts of darknesses out there, right? That, that were never able to be persuadable. They're just people who are rotten to the very core. Um, it's not because something bad happened to them and it shaped their worldview and they responded in a way that was irrational, but, you know, something that we've actually seen social science show that people do. Um, it's just that they're really nasty people. And that means the Democrats are the good people because they're not the Donald Trump racists and the Donald Trump people are the bad people and we don't have to worry about them anymore. Um, I, that, that to me is dangerous because it ignores all of the economic factors which have contributed to the rise of Trumpism. But I think it also lets Democrats off the hook for subtler forms of racism that Democrats have perpetuated. I mean, we see we, we are very eager to point the finger at um, people shouting, you know, Sig Heil at Trump rallies. It's pretty gross, right? It's shocking and terrifying. But, you know, I I wrote a piece several months ago about 88 Democrats, including the DNC chair, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, voting to legalize racial discrimination in the in the car market, in in auto lending, Um, literally legalizing a practice of charging black borrowers more than white borrowers. And um, that that didn't even get picked up on cable news. And so it, we, we, we sort of limit what we consider to be racist behavior to this really, really nasty, ugly stuff that we see at Trump rallies and then forget about all the other ways that institutionally we are, we are creating a more segregated society that, that sucks pr- predominantly for, for people of color, um, but which also has, has impacts on, uh, on, on, on poor white people through other economic policies. Well. I can tell you, having been a, a historic viewer of Sunday shows after elections, I can tell you that the chief occupation of any post-election pundit is to start the process of forgetting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, anyway, thanks for thanks for this discussion, uh, Zach and Arthur. And uh, as always, we will be right back. We're back. This is Arthur Delaney, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, an anonymous Republican lobbyist who wants Hillary Clinton to win. Say hello, anonymous Republican lobbyist. Hi, Arthur. It's been a while. Tell us what you think about Hillary Clinton. I think she'll secure Republican majorities for the next four, potentially eight years. I think she'll be an unpopular president should she win the day she walks in and become less popular every day she's in office. Okay, so you think that Hillary Clinton uh, will be good for Republicans in the medium to long term. Is, is, that, is that right? I also think she's going to be good for people like you and me, Washington establishment status quo, people that have thrived in a system that is working against almost everyone. Right, well, absolutely. I mean, Donald Trump is the man who d- d- you know doesn't really care about anything uh including the establishment. 
Um, so you you don't think Hillary Clinton would rock the boat too much at all for Republicans? I think people like you and me and lobbyists and media executives and lawyers and columnists and politicians and activists that you have on your shows, whether they're conservative or liberals, think tank fellows, educators, ad executives, all the elite, I think, would have been very nervous under a President Trump or Sanders. I think we'll be celebrating President Clinton. Well, now, Donald Trump is great for ratings. He's great for clicks. Honestly, he's, he's so unpredictable. And Hillary Clinton's very familiar and even a little boring at times. So I, I to, to counter what you're saying, I think um, from this, this purely superficial, uh, there are superficial reasons why people in the media would be fine with Trump. Um, but then there's the problem that he, you know, he would sick the IRS on people and have the FBI tap our phones. What do you, what do you think of that? I just think people like us, people that don't work really hard at all, <laughs> think we do will be very comfortable with the continuation of the status quo. Yeah. Now, Hillary Clinton's whole problem during the Democratic primary was that she's, compared to Bernie Sanders, basically a Republican. Do you feel that you would be able to work with a Hillary Clinton administration? Um, For instance, the way Republican Congressman Steve King said he would be able to work with her a couple weeks ago? So... In a continuation of the status quo environment, I think this is a good time to talk about sponsored content. Do your your listeners know what sponsored content is? Sponsored content is when a newspaper or news website, uh, you know, like runs a story by an advertiser, basically. And uh, it can be controversial depending on how well it's, it's labeled. But yeah, it's advertising. Right. I think guys like us, you know, engage in the type of sponsored content world of deceiving people will continue to be able to deceive people. All right. Now, if Donald Trump wins, what would that look like? Would that would that be really a major disruption for a Republican lobbyist? Or do you think that it would be similar to a situation with with a Clinton as president? I honestly don't know. I really don't. So. There's no way to know because Trump himself is so unpredictable, right? So, so what you're saying is um, you can anticipate what things will be like with Hillary Clinton. There's more certainty. That's a term that the private sector loves, certainty. Is that, is that basically the crux of why you feel like uh, a Clinton administration would be more favorable in the short term? I think when you and I go out and get drinks and, and appetizers on your corporate account and we talk about this i think you you and i agree yes so what do you think it would be like in a trump administration do you think that he would actually be able to uh mess things up enough you know people talk about him launching a nuclear war do you think things would be worse under a trump administration or not appreciably different like like a republican's gonna win in four years if trump's president the way they would if hillary clinton is I, I guess, you know, we used to waterboard people, uh-huh. but we, we don't do that anymore. We, we do kill people by accident with drones. And on purpose. Well, I guess, yeah, sure. Uh, innocent, uh, I should say innocent people. Okay. Uh, by accident with drones. So I don't know. I mean, you know, we talk about how chaotic things can get. Um, I'd rather personally be waterboarded than accidentally killed, but maybe that's just... Well, people do get accidentally killed during waterboarding anonymous lobbyists. Uh, not 100% of the time. No. But you 100% of the time get killed if you were accidentally killed. Okay, so let me, ju- let me just try to distill this, this position that you have, uh, your support of Hillary Clinton. It would be more predictable. It would be this, a continuation of the status quo. And you think there would be a future benefit because she wouldn't be that popular and Republicans would clean up in midterm elections, and, 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 and then win the presidency in four years. Don't forget redistricting is coming down the pike, yeah, the census and the redrawing of congressional maps. Tell us a little about what you expect to happen with that. You, you, so this is a huge opportunity for Republicans in a, in a Clinton administration. 
Well, I believe due to Barack Obama's presidency, we've Republicans have more congressional seats than any time since the Great Depression. That's a fact. I yeah. don't believe it's because the American people are wildly excited about Republicans. I think it was just a reaction to maybe overreached policies yeah. or, or some type of visceral reaction to Democratic leadership. Um, I feel like if Clinton were to win, that same scenario would exist heading into the redistricting process in which governors and state state legislatures will redraw maps in 2020. Uh, a lot of those elected officials that control that process will be elected or re-elected in 2018, and I think it could serve us really well until 2030. Do you think that if Donald Trump won, there could be a massive liberal backlash that would that would benefit Democrats in the same way you think uh, Republicans would benefit under a Clinton administration? Under George W. Bush's presidency, we lost the House and Senate. Well, there you under go. Obama's, we gained it. Yeah. All right. Anonymous Republican lobbyist, thank you so much for joining the podcast. When can we go out and get drinks and you can buy me free stuff on your corporate accounting? Anonymous Republican lobbyist, I, you know, there's no, I make no bones about it. When I take sources out for drinks and appetizers, it, it goes on the card. Whether that's you or a poor person. Yeah. Arthur, America needs us. Thank you so much for joining the podcast, Anonymous Republican lobbyist. I guess I'll see you pretty soon. Yes. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced, edited, and engineered by Christine Canetta. Our executive producer is Nick Offenberg. I'm Jason Lincolns, and this week we were joined by an anonymous Republican lobbyist behind a digital voice encoder, as well as Huffington Post reporters Zach Carter, Arthur Delaney, Christina Wilkie, and Jeff Young. So That Happened is available on iTunes at iTunes.com slash So That Happened. Check out the whole family of Huffington Post podcasts in the iTunes store. And while you're there, subscribe and tell your friends. If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please feel free to send us an email at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. Thanks to all of you for listening, and we miss you already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.